prog rock. The punks and mods hated it. The critics ripped it apart, and often still do. And the metalheads built upon it, turned it into something completely different. But as the psychedelic 60s gave way to the high-tech 70s and art school students put their heads together with music theory and humanities majors, the boundaries of rock stretched way beyond the breaking point. Plus, the locus of music moved from the dance floor and the stage to the recording studio. The relatively highbrow worlds of fashion, literature, formal musical training, and concept art met the relatively lowbrow world of electric guitar, bass, drums, and keyboards, and an entirely new way of performing popular music was born. Carry on my wayward son, there'll be peace when you are done, lay your weary head to rest, don't you cry no Hello, I'm John J. Thompson, and if you've been with us for any length of time on the True Tunes podcast, you've hopefully caught on to the fact that we are truly interested in a wide range of musical genres and eras around here. We've talked about Americana music, Jesus music, psychedelic rock, gospel, rap, apocalyptic folk, and more. The key, I believe, to understanding diverse styles, though, to really getting to the good stuff, is to talk to true experts about these things. Who better to talk to about Americana music than Buddy Miller, for instance? And since we started this show, I have wanted to have an episode devoted to the mind-blowing, dexterous, diverse, but often maligned and misunderstood world of progressive rock. So, to do that, we have tracked down one of the most respected prog rock artists in the world, Mr. Neil Morse. He of Spock's Beard, Transatlantic, Flying Colors, and his own bands, to hear about the genre in general and his incredible story in particular. It took us a while, but thanks to our friend and prog rock translator Mark Hollingsworth, a conversation finally happened at Neil's impressive home studio and label headquarters north of Nashville. Prog rock, also referred to as art rock or symphonic rock, was born in the mid-60s, came into full flower in the early 70s, and then hit the top 40 with hits by Kansas, Styx, and Genesis, before falling out of favor with the mainstream as punk, disco, new wave, and hard rock took over. It never died, though. A devoted remnant of fans has remained committed to the intricately crafted conceptual sounds and lofty ideas arranged prodigiously by musical wizards.
this episode, with the help of one of the genre's most accomplished and respected practitioners, we will attempt to pull the veil back a bit, to climb the misty mountain of Prague, to see what makes this music so compelling to so many despite its relative commercial obscurity, critical dispassion, and seeming cultural unhipness. In the process, we will examine the amazing story of that one musician, an uber-talented songwriter, guitarist, and keyboard player who spent the 80s pursuing rock and roll glory in Los Angeles, only to find himself frustrated, depressed, and on the verge of giving up when a surprise turn saved his musical and even spiritual life. Adventure commences right after we take care of a little bit of housekeeping. Hello, I'm Chris, and I'm a Patreon supporter of the True Tunes podcast, which has quickly become one of my favorite podcasts. I can always expect John's warm voice and insightful questions to draw out the stories, wisdom, and faith of beloved and new to me musical artists. After every episode, I'm always listening with fresh ears to favorite albums or visiting new albums for the first time. It's just like when I used to visit the old True Tune store in Wheaton, Illinois, but now I can visit every week with new episodes. True Tune's Patreon supporters support the show with monthly donations of $5, $10, or $20, which helps to cover the cost of producing and hosting the show. As a thanks for our support, we get early access to episodes and high-quality, lossless WAV files of each episode that we can download. We also have occasional Zoom meetups, some special live streams, discounts on TrueTune swag, and more. You can join me and the other patrons by visiting patreon.com slash truetunes, or finding the link on the show notes page. If an ongoing patronage thing is not the right fit for you, but you'd like to give us a tip to help with the costs associated with this show, you can find links for that on the show notes page. Thanks, and enjoy. Hey, this is Ray, and I just left a rating and review at Apple Podcasts. Because I know how important that is. As this show grows and reaches more people, would you please take a few minutes to do the same? It's easy. And even if you don't listen on Apple, the reviews there show up on lots of other apps and sites. Thanks a lot.
If you're not familiar with Neil Morse, you're probably not a fan of modern prog rock. And that's okay. I'm actually thrilled to have you listening. Whether you ever enjoy this music or not, I think you'll find his story fascinating. Fans of the genre will know him from the bands he has formed and helmed. Spock's Beard, Flying Colors, Transatlantic, and his own Neil Morse band among them. It might help you to know that rock legends like John Anderson of Yes and Kerry Livgren of Kansas are fans. Many prog fans will have heard of his proprietary festival, Morse Fest, or have heard his name pop up as a collaborator with any number of A-listers in the scene. But if this is all new to you, rest assured, we're in good hands. I first met Neil when he performed an amazing late night set at the final Cornerstone Festival in 2012. After what may have been the longest and most complicated sound check in the history of the gallery stage, I was thrilled to introduce him to an enraptured audience. Since Neil has so much music of his own, we're not going to have a standard jukebox feature on this episode. Instead, Bruce has loaded the jukebox up with songs from many of his different projects and entities and is going to let them spill out all over the show. But for now, let's head into the studio with Neil Morse. Thank you for joining the True Tunes podcast and being with us today. Thanks for letting me come here to your your lair yeah, north of Nashville, coming, where man. all the magic thanks. happens. Yeah, um, been wanting to dive in and kind of grab this tiger by the tail and learn some more about progressive rock. And there's just nobody I think could probably teach us. And uh, <laughs> and you've got quite a story, so I'm really I'm excited to hear about it. Well, thank you. Good to be with you. Tell me about your uh, earliest memories of music as a kid. What what grabbed your attention and first got its hooks in you and said, yeah, this is a path you're going to follow for real? Well, my dad was a music teacher. So the first music I remember would be choral music. He was a choir director. Mm. So he would teach us madrigals. Oh, yeah. Um, madrigals. Yeah. I wore the tights and everything. I wore the tights too. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> At the Renaissance Fair. Yeah, right. yeah. We ran out of gas on the way home. <laughs> My dad, we somebody had self-made our like yep. one of the moms made our outfits. Same here. And they were like it was like a yellow smock yeah. with pantyhose. Yep. It was horrible. <laughs> <laughs> this is in like Topanga Canyon in California. One of the canyon, Laurel Canyon. Yeah. No, not no, it would be Topanga or 
further out where they used to have the Renaissance Fair. So we run out of gas in a station wagon, you know, 1968 or something. <laughs> and Dad gets out. He has to hitchhike. And he looks like a giant Tweety Bird. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> he gets, somebody gave him a ride. <laughs> you know, hippies would pick up anybody, I guess. Maybe <laughs> <laughs> so he was dressed perfectly for that day. But yeah, so we, so we sang madrigals. And so I learned to sing, you know... Uh, Stuff that had some intricacy to it when I was little, mm-hmm. and uh, really enjoyed that. the The biggest thing for me uh, in popular music would have been the the, the Beatles, of course. Mm-hmm. You know, I was I was four years old when they played on Ed Sullivan. I vaguely remember it, vaguely, but it was just like, oh yeah. I mean, just like the whole rest of the world. That's what I want to do, ladies and gentlemen, the Beatles. That's- Close your eyes and I'll kiss you Do you remember when you first were like, I'm going to write songs and learn how to play an instrument? Well, the writing song, of course, you know, I'm four years old then <laughs> in 1964. So, no, the creating came when I was more like 11 and 12. I started playing piano. They put me in piano lessons at five. and But I didn't really, and I knew I wanted to be involved in music in some way, but I didn't start writing till I was really 12 years old. And then, the big thing for me was uh, I saw Yes open for Black Sabbath at the LA Forum. My brothers were older. You might be wondering, what's this kid going to go see Black Sabbath at 12 years old? That's a little unusual. Well, you know, my... And they were a little different early on than they got later. Like, they weren't... Oh, no, they were horrible. (laughs) Okay. No, no, no. I, I, I love some of the Sabbath yeah. stuff. I loved it yeah, then. I mean, yeah. I love the power of rock. Right. Uh, and then, uh, anyway, yes, yes, opened up. Uh, I'd never heard of them, mm-hmm. and that that was a real light bulb moment because, and that's the thing about progressive rock, is it's not it's so multifaceted it's not just one part of music a lot of times people only want to listen to one style of music at a time but i grew up my dad's choral programs were very eclectic yeah i I don't know what the plural of eclectic is but (laughs) the the, seemed to me the the musical world at that time i mean you know if you listen to the woodstock album there's a lot of eclecticism in there or whatever the word would be and so that that was sort of normal. In fact, it was thought to be sort of boring to me. And when I was growing up, if you were just going to do one style, you know, it was be it'd be like a contemporary song, a classical song, a Japanese song, a right. Negro spiritual. You know, that was the way we a madrigal. You know, and that was the way I was kind of uh, raised up. So when I saw Yes, and they had rock music with pop vocals. I would say mm-hmm. a lot of harmony, and then uh, classical piano, right. you know, classical elements, jazz elements. I was like, "Wow, you can do this! You can do it! Have it all in one!" Right. And it was all the things that I loved, you yeah. know, um, you know, classical guitar, uh, 
you know, just and the, and all the vocal harmony. The, I loved um, all the vocal harmony of the Beatles, and then later on, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, and you know, uh, Yes, really encompassed all of those things. Do you think the Beatles even kind of set the stage a little bit for the progressive rock with what they were doing? Revolver heading into White Album, had you know, Sergeant Pepper. It seemed like them and Beach Boys were already to my ears and i'm i'm 10 years behind you at that point so i was listening to that stuff over the last 20 years and going man it really feels like they were kind of proto prog like they were sure they were pushing the boundaries and trying to pull three genres into one song or create suites of things yeah oh yeah um everybody was on the same ship really I think the Beatles said that. We were all in the same ship. Maybe we were just a little further forward. Mm-hmm. But I mean, if you listen to, I'll say to my wife all the time, we'll listen to the radio, Prague. <laughs> That's Prague influence in some yeah. total right. pop song. Right. From the time, you know, suddenly they'll just edit and go into some other part and then go back. You know, they didn't do that before. You know, everybody was, people were exploring. And I think it became to the point where if you weren't exploring very much. Uh, you just weren't it, trying. It, it was, <laughs> I think it was boring right. for people for, you, for a period of time. down the country path for a bit as a writer and artist as well right i did that's skipping very far oh very far ahead oh okay no no um in the early 90s i was dating a girl who was a country singer in la and she asked me to write some songs for her and at that time country was it was just starting to be a little more pop ish and so i listened to the songs that she was singing and then i tried to write stuff that was sort of like but, that okay but that was long after you had been on this other musical oh yeah i went through a lot of i went through a ton of musical uh journeys yeah. you know i was in a band that was kind of like a sticks journey band in the 80s i was in the i was in a new wave kind of band with haircut 100 uh-huh. i was uh you know i had the new wave haircut uh you know i mean I was trying to make it. Yeah. Uh, it was. You and, were in LA. I was in LA. Yeah. And then, really, the thing I spent most of my time on was trying to get a deal as a singer-songwriter, sort of a Billy Joel type. Uh, but then in the '80s, that wasn't as popular. So then there were the certain people, and later came like people like uh, Mark Cohn and Bruce Hornsby. Mm-hmm. So I was. Then I was trying to do stuff that sounded a little hipper. Like their stuff sounded a little hipper, mm-hmm. and but that was my thing was to uh, in my twenties anyway was to be a singer songwriter. I didn't start writing prog till I was in my thirties.
aside from your career path or what you were hoping to accomplish professionally, what were you doing just as a musician in terms of composing, practicing, woodshedding? What was making you excited just as a personal artist? In those days? Yeah. How, how what does that path well, look like for you? that different than now. Yeah. Uh, okay, that's what I... getting up in the morning and sitting down at the piano and, you know, seeing what comes out, you know, hearing things and, you know... So I, I, I've woken up most a lot of my life with melodies in my mind and, you know, trying to sort them out and see what they should be and putting words to them. And, um, yeah, it was, that was my religion before mm. I became religious. <laughs> <laughs> was there sort of a, a seeking something deeper in the music were you trying to find something spiritual in it did you feel that there was something essentially spiritual about music in that or were you just i think i did i think i did Mm. later on you know in the latter half of my 20s particularly i just had so many experiences um that were beyond me what i mean is there were times when I felt like I heard whole pieces of music just playing in my head. Mm. And I just felt like it wasn't from me. And so I began to pray to the universe. I, the, the people that I was around in LA and the things that I was doing, um, there were a lot of people that were So they would say things like, uh, well, put it out there in the universe, which is kind of their way of saying, pray about it. Seek the Lord about it, we would say. I would say now, but at that time. And I remember very clearly, this is part of my history. I was standing out in front of my uh, house there in California, and I was and I was kind of saying like, oh universe, make this piece that you know, I started writing musicals, I think, you know, in my late twenties and you know, I always wanted to do something grand. Mm-hmm. I suppose most musicians do. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. Um and so I was praying about whatever it was, whatever piece it was. Oh universe, would you make this, you know, live in people's hearts and make this, you know, something that uh, is really successful and and I remember very clearly this you know, voice from inside booming in my chest, almost like, will you knock it off and call me God? (laughs) Wow. Wow, man. And so I went, okay. And so I started to use the word God after that. I was probably 28, I guess. When no one knows the bad things that you've done, the past is truly gone in the land of beginning again and i love my brother more than my own are new behold the slate is clean 
wish there was a way to start again Just blink and count to ten In the land of beginning again In the land of beginning again But music was was like um, and this was the problem actually music was my god and so I was looking for music to supply happiness fulfillment uh, provision you know I was supposed to make it and have enough <laughs> right and somehow it was music was supposed to fulfill me and when I discovered that it was never enough was in my early 30s and I and I kind of just and I pl- coupled with the fact that I hadn't been yes I hadn't gotten the record deal the All the right. pot of gold that I was looking for um, I hadn't gotten the acceptance that I thought I deserved I, I, I felt very angry I became a very angry bitter person mm-hmm. at like 31 mm-hmm. and I have to say this because it's such an important thing that happened and then I did this course I was trying to do anything that I could do to get me get myself out of this depression and hole that I was in because I didn't really want to write anymore I still wrote because it was just in me but it was all just really as you can imagine very depressing mm-hmm. sad Right. stuff some of which was good i wound up recording some of it later on but i did this self-growth course called the landmark forum and uh i did the first one and was like uh, and then i did the advanced course and i won't i won't go into too much detail about it but i what i saw in the course was that i had collapsed how i felt about the music business with music itself Mm, wow yeah like it was one domain (laughs) right like one circle right called music and it was filled with all kinds of resentment and bitterness and death Mm -hmm. and they held they through the things that they said i saw that they weren't the same thing Mm -hmm. Right. (laughs) and my story about the music business when i separated it out from music itself I kind of I had an awakening and I was like I always think of Monty Python. I never wanted to be a, an accountant. I wanted to be a lumberjack. Right? I never wanted to be a brooding artist. Right. I didn't want to just I wanted to write big pieces of music. Right. I wanted to write stuff like West Side Story and Close to the Edge and you know yeah. and so right out of that course I wrote what would become what was the first Spock's Beard album. Wow. Yeah, I just had this like I'm going to write stuff that nobody will like. Everyone will hate it. You know, I never wanted to just do stuff that I hated. What's the right. point of that? Right. You know, although I did sometimes, but even that stuff wasn't accepted. Right. right. I couldn't even sell out. Yeah. <laughs> I really suck. I, was, I can't even suck. Right. I, I suck even, so bad. I, try, I worked really hard at getting advertising gigs and, right. and then they'd fall, the campaigns yeah, would right. fall through. I'm like, right. Right. gosh. But, yeah, when I really, it's it's such a wonderful and somehow obvious thing, isn't it? That mm-hmm. when you give up 
trying to be successful, then you have the first success that you would ever have. Open up the floodgates in your mind that you might be set free. Open up the windows left behind and stand in what could be. When something shifts Let's not assume that everybody's heard of Spock's beard. Tell me about right. how. <laughs> That's a safe assumption. I mean, <laughs> well, I know that there's a lot of people who have, and it was quite a thing. And but let's uh, let's tell me a little bit about how you then found first the the jump to even just conceptually start to experiment back with that progressive rock genre. How did you go from where you were creatively to that? And how did those songs, how did you recognize, oh, this is what I'm doing. I'm, this is a completely different genre in the nineties when that music is probably 20 years outside of its heyday, you know, commercially anyway. Yeah. Well, I made the demos on a, you know, those old Porta Studio cassette, but I mean, but it just poured out and, and then, you know, like other highs that I would get from my creativity. You know, of course, there's that high that you get. And, you know, at first I was like, oh man, this is great. But after a while, I decided it wasn't that great. You know, it's like, I don't know, after a while the buzz wears off and you're like, I don't know, I got this stuff. So I, I had my brother Alan play on the demos. And he just did so much killer stuff. It was great. When we actually came down to making the record, I, I, I flew in a bunch of his guitar stuff from the Porta Studio. Right. Like, literally, talk about, like, yeah. cable out, yep. cable in to the yeah. ADAT. Like, right. I took the output of the Porta Studio into the ADAT, and I'd push play on one yep. and push play on the other right. just, like, until I got it Same timed out. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah, this is before we could just slide things around right. in Pro Tools. We had to actually. Yeah. But anyway, Al and Al seemed very. Uh, he's a pretty laid back guy, you know. I would say he seemed nonplussed. Would be. And then he called me up a couple weeks later. He was on vacation and he called me up and was like, "Dude, this stuff is killer. We got to put a band together." I was like, "Oh, bands." He and I had been through so many bad. I mean, I could just tell you stories all day. Funny stories yeah. of uh, like crazy L.A. bands and things that we were in and meetings that we had with insane managers and stuff. <laughs> right. But you're so hungry, you're just like the kid like, oh, yeah, sure, we'll dress like Kiss, you know? Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, whatever it takes. Yeah, whatever. Anyway, we've been through so much bad stuff that I was, I was the burnout and he was the 
the guy carrying the torch. And so, so we we put a band together, and you know, again, there's lots of stories about all of that, but we put a band together, and then he was the one trying to get us a record deal. So he actually, you know, had us had a little briefcase filled with cassettes, yep. going around having meetings with people. I was like, God, I don't know how you can do that anymore. You know, I was just so burnt out. Yeah. And I was just playing cover gigs in bars to make a living. Mm. So, I mean, it was a really depressing life. You know, lots of drinking and drugs. And, you know, I was just getting more and more depressed while Al was doing all that. And, and then, you know, it t- it, uh, sadly, uh, you know, or what, for whatever reason, it took us like four years to get... Uh, a, we worked on a deal with a company for like a year and then... It, didn't work out and he wound up getting a, a deal with this very small guy who was like putting records out of his literally out of his garage the thing that's interesting is that you kind of give up trying to be a hit chasing where you think the market's going then that doesn't seem to work but eventually it does kind of find this audience this group of folks that probably also felt like i love this kind of music and nobody's making this anymore and so so this sort of underground audience has been kind of have been had been waiting for the handful of progressive rock new because they're still listening to their rush albums and their yes albums and whatever you know they're but they finally get something new and yeah yeah i think i said when we uh oh i I left out the fact that that al actually funded the first record we finally decided well let's just make it ourselves we had people we could borrow adats from that was the thing you recorded on in those days and we made all of all the spock's beard records that i was on were on ADATs, on VHS tapes. Wow. Even Snow. Yeah. I still got it in my, my closet, actually. Do you, have the, do you have a way to transfer stuff off of ADAT I still have Tools? an ADAT, yeah, yeah. Oh my yeah. gosh, we'll have to talk about that another yeah, day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I have to. Every once in a while, there seems yeah. like there's a need for it. But anyway, yeah, so we made our own record, and then um, it did find an audience. I think when we played LA Prague Fest in 96, I think, I said, they gave us this standing ovation that lasted like 10 minutes. It was embarrassing. You, know, you, you don't know what to do after a while. Right. <laughs> but that's the way Prague fans are. You know, when we, Transatlantic just played it, uh, their last show in Paris this last July. And it was the same way. When we finished the first piece, they, they clapped for so long. We were just like, well, we'll just wait until you guys are done. <laughs> but they were just really, the, the people are really, really passionate about the music, which is great because that's exactly how we are. Right. You know, so there's this whole 
whole kindred thing. But yeah, what a wonderful thing to find an audience. And I was 36. Step away from my conversation with Neil Morse for just a minute, but we'll be right back after this. Hello, my name's Rob, and I'm one of the Patreon backers of the True Tunes podcast. I'm honored to invite you to join me in support of True Tunes by signing up on their email list. I know email is often annoying, but by being on the list, I get notified when new episodes drop and when new articles get posted at truetunes.com. Sometimes, John even sends out short notes and gives away records and swag and stuff. Super cool. But really, the point is that by staying directly connected, I know that they don't have to pay Facebook or anyone else in order for me to hear from them, and that's important. They don't send out too many emails either, and I'm always happy to get them. So really, it would be helpful if you'd join me over here. You can find the sign-up link on the front page at truetunes.com. Oh, and don't forget to add John's email address, jjt at truetunes.com, to your contacts so that the emails don't get caught in your spam filter. And if you have any feedback on the show or questions, you can email him and he'll get back to you eventually. Thanks for listening. Hey there, I'm Mark Feldbush from Columbus, Ohio. I'm a Patreon backer of the True Tunes podcast. I've also left a rating and review of the show at Apple Podcasts. It really wasn't that hard. It didn't cost me anything. But this show means a heck of a lot to me. And I know that reviews and ratings make a big difference when it comes to how and if others discover these conversations. Would you take a few minutes, maybe even while you're listening, if you're not driving, of course, to leave a rating and a review? Even if you don't listen on Apple Podcasts, the reviews posted there push out the podcast to platforms all around the world. Oh, and take some time to tell your friends about the show. Let's drive the numbers up together. Thanks. Welcome back to the studio with Neil Morse. i 
So in a nutshell, if you had to, if you found yourself on a train or a plane sitting next to somebody who's like, I don't, you know, I, what is progressive rock? How, how would you describe how the genre has evolved and what, what is prog rock? How would you describe it as an expert in the field? <laughs> well, I would usually say, well, it generally it doesn't have to, but it generally involves uh, the kind of merging of a lot of different styles. Mm-hmm. Um, it generally goes outside of normal song structure. Mm-hmm. So there's instrumental passages and then, you know, vocal passages, but is it verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge? Mm-hmm. You know, um, and uh, usually uh, there's a lot of playing virtuosity yeah there's a lot well it's it's a little more music oriented than song oriented but i think the songs are also you know i always stress that i do some master classes and and things and i'm like guys all the great progressive rock songs have great songs as well as great instrumentals a lot of times people have great instrumentals but they're a little light on the song part and so with all my history as a songwriter i think that really played well into mm-hmm. you know going into into progressive rock because we always had choruses that people could sing along to Early on, the boundaries were so squishy, and it was it was pulling in folk, that kind of fairy folk, uh, weird folk kind of thing, with acid rock, with classical, and it could just get completely. It was very psychedelic and strange. And then you notice, I, I was kind of looking at how artists like Yes, they they go through that for 10, 12 years, and then in the 80s. They're figuring out, okay, you know what else we could do? We can write Owner of a Lonely Heart. And, and then some of the guys are like, we can also go over here and do Asia, where we can combine writing hits with progressive elements. Or Kansas is probably an even better example of mm-hmm. being able to, to merge great songs with great lyrics, great melodies, and those more classical musical overtures uh, to great effect where sometimes the bands were it was all about virtuosity and gymnastics and if you're a fan of the gymnastics you're you're in and as i listen to your stuff i can hear so many moments where it's like oh yeah this this clearly has a hook this has a point there's a narrative flow and it can go off into the forest and visit all the woodland creatures and then come back but i never felt lost like i never felt like it was just noodling for the sake of showing off well well good you know (laughs) i mean uh essentially when people ask me about how i write that stuff 
um, it's always like, well, I tried. I'm just listening and trying to hear where, trying to hear where the music wants to go. Mostly, sometimes it's like, oh, it's good to take a turn, you know, and to do something really unexpected. Mm-hmm. Like you're expecting that thing to repeat, but you just keep going, and then you put a cello line underneath it, you know, or or things like that, you know. Uh, trying to do something unexpected is also part of the progressive thing, I think. Um, but sometimes, you know, the pro- pro- the prog thing can become expected. Right. You know, it's like, oh, now they're going into an odd time signature thing that, oh, that sounds kind of like a Jethro Tull thing or... Right. You know, like anything else, it can become boring. It's a, it can be a formula. <laughs> yeah, well. if right. it's not inspired. I mean, I, I always say about all styles of music, I think it's all great if it's really inspired. Lord, my God, you were there when things were hard. So Spock's beard got quite successful within that underground thing. And then relatively shortly thereafter, you formed Transatlantic. There's also, you, you've got multiple things going on. Tell me about kind of the evolution of your path and how many different creative hats you end up wearing and why, why not just have one thing or have it all just be Neil Morse? Well, I mean, there, I suppose each thing had a different motivation or uh, you know creative beginning when transatlantic started you know I was still in survival mode oh you know I'm, Spox wasn't making enough to live off of so I was playing uh, I was looking for regular gigs I was still playing in pubs in Europe to make a living and I was then I joined the Eric Burden band But then I was like, I was praying and I was like, I don't want to be gone. I don't want to be on the road anymore. I was starting to have more relationship with God and become a Christian. And so that was one of my Jesus tests was because it's one thing to believe in God. And then for me, it was a it was another leap to, you know, Jesus says, believe in God, believe also in me. Um, and so, yeah, I, I tested him. I, uh, I was at the Days Inn in Boston playing organ with, and, and at first, and Eric was lovely to work with, nothing bad about Eric, but it, it was just the road, yeah. you know, my kids were little and I just began to feel like I was damaging them. But I, we just bought our first house, you know, you can very easily 
in life come to a place where you just feel trapped. I've got to do this or we're not going to be able to pay the rent. And my God, it's horrible. I don't want to do this. Um, anyway, so I got down on my knees and prayed like, Jesus, if you're real, help me get off the road. And then sometimes you're the only one that's going to know that it was God. But about 10 days later, I got a fax because this is when you were still getting faxes. It was like <laughs> this is also becoming a tour through the technology of the last right, 30 years. Right. <laughs> I got a fax from Metal Day Records saying we want to license the first two Spock Spears records or something and we'll pay you this much money. And it wasn't a ton of money, but we couldn't have lived off of it, especially it was band money, you know, it wasn't right. my money. But for me, that was a sign. Because I threw it out there and then I got this and uh, started my relationship with Metal Blade Records. And uh, so I quit the band after that. Eric's band. Eric's band, yes. You know, that was just one of the prayers. God, you know, God started answering prayers um, for me. My daughter was born with a large hole in her heart at that in 1998 98 mm-hmm. as well. And um, after, you know, the church praying for her, her they couldn't find the hole. Wow. And, and so that was cool. <laughs> that was, you know, the wow. funny thing about that was I was still scared of God. When my wife called me on the phone, I was I was playing with Eric in in Germany, and uh, I was like, "What what they say? They said they couldn't find the hole. Well, are, are they going to run more tests? I don't think so. They said that that she's fine. I'm like, well, well what do you mean? Well." And I was like in this panic. I think I was afraid to believe it because I knew that it was gonna change everything. You know, my my identity was at stake. Mm. <laughs> and the funny thing is, human beings are so funny. You know, we wanna hang on to our identities even if it kills us. Right, right, because it will. <laughs> right. right. And especially when we're miserable. Yeah. <laughs> right. The, you know, I mean, I had so much. is clearly not working. Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of things that were getting better, but I was still, you know, I mean, I was still a mess, mm-hmm. really. My wife was helping me, you know, the family was helping, but still inside. Anyway. When you pull on the rope and something pulls back, it's like, oh, whoa. <laughs> like, whoa. this is this isn't conceptual or distant anymore. This is feeling pretty close to me. And And what will happen to my whole life? Mm. You know, they'd have these altar calls at church, and I'd feel the Spirit of God tugging on me, and I'd just be like, uh, yikes, you know? And Which is funny, because you'd think I'd just run up there, because, mm-hmm. you know, I had so much stuff in me that, was so negative but somehow it just took me a while i didn't really jump in with both feet till like 2001 leave it all behind you time to let it go free the chains that bind you let your heart Follow the call. 
so transatlantic then came out of the seeds of that process of uh, leaving Eric's band and starting something new? Yeah, it was right around that time that Mike called me. And I think in our first conversation... And Mike would be... Mike Portnoy, excuse right. me. <laughs> Uh, from drummer from Dream Theater, right. they were you know riding very high in the latter part of the '90s, and he was talking Spock's beard up in all his. Mm-hmm. People were sending me copies of interviews of where he was talking about how great Spock's beard was. So the first thing I did when we got on the phone for the first time was thank him for all the good press. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think I mentioned something about like wanting to quit. Eric's band but worried about the finances and he said well I may be able to help with that Mm. you know God was just orchestrating all these things at the same time it's just amazing to me now looking back anyway yeah so uh, we made the first transatlantic album the point of the call was that Mike was like I'd like to do a project with you Um, so that became transatlantic and we we recorded the first transatlantic album I, I didn't meet Mike uh, until we uh, the lot we met in the lobby of the studio where we made the first Transatlantic album. <laughs> right. This is in 1999. 99, right. And the first record came out in 2000. Right. Yeah, I think we recorded it in August, but it came out in right at the beginning of 2000. And uh, how was that different? That process of making that record and the songwriting and just the creative approach. How did that differ from this Box Beard process? It was hell. <laughs> it really was. <laughs> I remember coming back. I took my wife and kids up there, and they were in a motel near the studio in upstate New York. And I come back, Sherry. I don't know if I can make it. Hmm. Well, Spock's pretty much played this stuff the way I wrote it. Pretty much, we played with some stuff when we got together. But you know, Transatlantic was slicing and dicing and. And moving so fast, we were moving so fast. I didn't even remember what we did. The like, we come in the next morning to listen to what we did, and I didn't. I didn't know what was coming next. I couldn't. We moved. We'd done so much stuff, and a lot of the stuff that you know they were messing with was stuff from my demos on the first piece, anyway. And so I just was not used to it, and it was it was difficult. It was like. Either I was going to walk away or accept it. There wasn't any way to, you know, this was this was a band thing, right? And I wanted it to, like, you want it to be a band thing, but still, <laughs> Until it's a it, band, <laughs> right? But still, it's like, oh, you know, yeah. I just, I just felt like they were just, you know, it was like Frankenstein. They were just hacking off the head. You know, yeah. no, the head came later. The first, it's like, well, let's take off. Well, I don't like that part. Let's take off the foot. Oh, okay, I guess I can go deal with no foot. You know, then they take <laughs> off the arm. You're like, oh, no arm. You're gonna change the verse. You know, then they like lop off the chorus. And you're like, okay. Well, <laughs> I don't know what it is now. <laughs> it's right. a monster. <laughs> no, but and, and what a learning experience. You know, when the when the smoke cleared. You know, maybe six months after. And I listened to the record, and I just had that moment like, it is better. It is good that that jam section, that you know that jam section and all of the above that goes on for so long. Why are we going to jam in this one to four thing for so long? I mean, 
Is, are we a jam band now? You know, jam bands were very big at that right. time, you know. Anyway, uh, yeah, th- I learned to trust, and I, I learned a lot. Flying Colors is another thing that ended up happening. So how did that offshoot happen? Well, I can quote this because Steve said it in in our first band interview ever. Uh, It started because Flying Colors really started with Steve and I wanting to write together. And so I I really felt the Lord. It was a God thing for sure. I mean, because I'm not somebody who's like dying to travel extra. (laughs) <laughs> or, or, or we're like really looking for people to collaborate with. You know, I'm pretty happy a lot of times just doing my thing. I'm just right. being honest. But I really felt the Lord was like this mutual friend of ours called up and said, "If you want to write with Steve, you should go down there this week. He's got this week open." He's he kept saying he was going to fly up here, and uh, Steve Morse is also a pilot and a wonderful, wonderful guy. But we, you know, he kept saying he was going to fly up here and he wasn't doing it. And, you know, I was like, oh, this got in the way. Anyway, so I flew to Tampa, rent a car at the last minute and drove up to his place and we started writing. And uh, what he said, what Steve said in the first band interview in L.A., which was just jaw dropping. I love band interviews because people say things all the time that you're just like, whoa, I didn't know that. So Steve says to the guy, they ask the same question. And Steve says, well, um. I wanted to write with Neil because I, I, I wanted to work with someone who has a soul. <laughs> and, he, and, he just, and he just kept talking, like, real totally straight-faced. <laughs> oh, my God. And I was like, oh, my God. What? What, what did you just say? <laughs> I always love that. Steve's got the driest sense of humor. It's, did he's the, so did the reviewer react at all? I don't think so. Because <laughs> Steve like, didn't react. Yeah, he just he said, just and they just kept talking. <laughs> and so when we got together, it's just like, did anybody else hear that? <laughs> that was great. You're like, well, Steve, I got news for you. I had my soul removed months ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was great. Thank you. 
so this um, process of doing so many different things, how has that shaped you? Uh, it, it seems like then you start to do Neil, either the Neil Morse projects or Neil Morse band. Um, eventually you kind of get into that territory. How, how did you find eventually that you're ready to just kind of um, be an artist and assemble different musicians to play with you or play stuff yourself? And how did that journey kind of lead you to that place? Well, you know, I started off doing everything myself. Um, you know, on the original uh, Spox demos, I played everything. And, you know, I had Al, you know, kind of do accoutrements, lead guitar, weird noises, solos. But I, I, you know, I was used to doing everything. And then, you know, the transatlantic thing sort of blew me out of the water in a really good way. Uh, I need to make sure, <laughs> since I said it was hell. I mean, they all know that it was hard for me. It's still hard. Collaborating's always, you know, it's it's a little bit like a marriage, you know? I mean, it's, it's heaven and it's hell, too. Mm -hmm. You know, when you don't agree and you got to work it out, it's hard. Uh, but uh, I'm so grateful for Transatlantic and uh, and Flying Color is the same. I learned so much from those guys. Um, you know, Casey, the painstakingly going through his lyrics. You know, one word, porcelain. I don't know if I like porcelain. <laughs> you know, yeah. like, wow. <laughs> you know, I was used to in the Spocks days was just like, Half Moon Bay playing 45s. I don't know what it means. Sings good. <laughs> right. You know? And yeah, Casey's just like every nuance of the lyric. He's, we're, we'll spend hours. You know, the last time we worked, we had to do it on Zoom. But uh, it was, you know, just hours going. He'll usually write a set of lyrics. I'll write a set of lyrics. And then we'll kind of figure it out. Um and so, yeah, I've learned so much from all everybody. And the guys in the Neil Morse band are just... I'm so blessed. How did, how did this happen? <laughs> I, mean, you could, I mean, you could arguably say that I've gotten to work with like some of the very best musicians in the world. You know? Yeah. I mean, it's like, <laughs> yeah. you know, guys like Phil Keggy, yeah. Kerry Livgren, um, Paul Gilbert. I'm sure, you know, I mean, there's so many. Yeah. Uh, right. So many, you know, Steve Hackett, uh you know, just amazing, amazing people. And so I'm just really, really, really thankful. And I'm not afraid anymore. Yeah, I think I finally opened up the door. No, I'm not afraid anymore. And I'm ready to reach out for something more. Oh, 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 oh,
More with Neil Morse after this. Hello, I'm Matt from Philadelphia, and I'm a Patreon backer of True Tunes. This show is really important to me. John's conversations are not only fun and interesting, they have invited me to discover and rediscover music that makes the world a better place. Every episode invites me to become a better listener, not just to music, but to the people who create it. As a result, I think I might be becoming a better listener to the people in my life as well. I know that my $5, $10, or $20 per month goes a long way toward helping with the costs associated with producing and distributing a show of this caliber. And yes, the rewards are cool too. We get early access to new episodes that we can download in a higher quality audio format, as well as invites to exclusive backers-only Zoom hangs and some special swag and stuff. Check out patreon.com slash true tunes for more information or to join me and the rest of the Patreon tribe. Thanks. Hey, this is Ray and I'm a Patreon backer of the True Tunes podcast. I have really enjoyed following and listening to the True Tunes gallery stage mixtape that John curates every week on Spotify. Kind of reminds me of walking into the old True Tunes and John being so excited about some new music he heard. Each week, usually midweek, he updates the mix with around 40 new songs, sometimes new releases, sometimes deep tracks, and I try to listen to it every week. I have discovered tons of new music and been reminded of things I loved from the past. Sometimes he ties songs into current events or seasons, and I've even noticed that by listening regularly, I often get a subliminal heads up on artists before they show up on the podcast. You can find the mix on the front page at truetunes.com or on the show notes page for this episode. You can play it from the player on the site, or if you follow it, it will always update automatically for you and hang out right there in your Spotify browser. And as always, as great as Spotify and other streaming services are for music discovery, please remember to support the artists you love once you discover them. Thanks. We're back with Neil Morse. Hey. I watch as the man fell on down to his knees As the pack on his back hit the floor Tell me about your awareness of this world of actual, quote unquote, Christian rock music. Did you think about that from a marketing perspective or did you did you worry or ever notice any difference when how your fans reacted to that? 
Well, um, all the way through, it was led by the Spirit of God. You know, my motivation all the way along, I quit Spock's and Transatlantic because I felt like I should. I mean, it was a moment of prayer. Like, I just felt like the Lord was like, it's time and you know. Like, okay. I did know. So I quit and then I didn't know what I was going to be doing. I, uh, you know, was ready to do anything, you know, be a barista or, <laughs> thank God, <laughs> I don't make very good coffee, so I'm glad that didn't <laughs> happen. But uh, then, you know, I started to just hear, I think it was about three months after I quit the bands, I started to just hear all this progressive rock music playing in my mind. It was so much, I, like I couldn't contain it. You know, you talk about the exceeding abundance of God. Because I thought that God would use me in the Christian realm. I thought that God was going to, you know, I was just waiting and praying, just waiting and praying. And uh, I thought that he would make me a music, music. I thought he'd probably use me in music some way because that was my skill set. So, but I didn't know how. I was like, Lord, are you going to open a door that I'll be a music minister in a church downtown in Nashville? Or, or you want me to make, you know, because I can write pop songs. I've written, you know, I've made some worship albums. I can write worship music, and I think some of it's pretty good. And, you know, so I could, he could have opened a door there, but he didn't, you know. And so I just started to write the testimony album. I didn't even know. I didn't want to do the same thing that I was doing and put a Christian stamp on it. I didn't want to, you know, not change and say I was changed. <laughs> you know? okay. Does that make any sense? Sure. Yeah. You know, so so I was very cautious about it, and I just started writing it. I thought, well, it can't hurt to write it. And in those days, I, was, I carried around a handheld cassette recorder, and uh, I was trying to help a friend move, and I was... I was trying to help them move, and I started hearing this music. You know, I'm hearing this whole like kind of classical piece in my mind that I was just loving. The cello line, you know. And I was like, I put the couch down, and I said, because I had forgotten my recorder, and I was worried I was going to lose it. Right. So I was like, I'm sorry, guys, I got to go. You know, so they still joke with me, like, don't ask Neil to help you move. Because <laughs> he might get a song. He might hear a cello. When he's carrying a couch. Yeah. But it was, it, was just, it was just amazing, the outpouring. And so that became the testimony album. And then, you know, I was surprised. I didn't know, you know, I mean, it was new. It was a new door I was walking through. I don't know what the best analogy mm-hmm. is. But, yeah, I didn't know if anybody would go, if we were going to lose the house you know is everything just going to come crashing down and you know we're gonna have to figure out what else to do but i mean that that is the life of faith that's the true life of faith is you know jesus is always like outside of the boat you know saying come on get out and walk with me out where it's risky and that's where it was for my wife and i and uh i thought it was just great that like about half the audience came Mm -hmm. i think we lost about half at that time but it's morphed and changed since then you know right. that was that was 2003 or something and that might have just been a function of awareness too well some people do not want to hear about jesus 
you know, there was about half of the audience, maybe, maybe less. I don't know, you know, as far as percentages go. But there were certain people that were like, ah, I can't listen to this anymore. And there's still people like that. Like, I love progressive rock music and I like a lot of his music, but I can't listen to anything that talks about Jesus. And that's fair enough, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's, I, I don't think before I knew him and everything changed in my life, I don't think I would have been too keen on listening to music that had stuff about Jesus in it. I made this concept album right before I left Spock's Beard. It's called Snow. We didn't want to do it. We were all against a concept album, but it just wanted to be a concept album. Because <laughs> it seems like one of those of prog things. Like, yeah, it okay, seems so yeah, check the box. We got right, a yeah, concept yeah, yeah. record. Where's the pointy hats? Well, right, the pointy yeah, right. <laughs> Where the cape? Yeah, we'll put the cape no and the pointy hat. And then Testimony comes in. It's a concept album. And then somebody comes to my house and makes this suggestion about one did God create many things or did he create one thing? Ooh. I don't know. It just sparked this whole thing right. which became the one album. And then came the Sola Scriptura, the Question Mark albums, all these concept albums. Um, and I think one thing that's great about concept albums as a Christian is you can tell a story it's, which is totally different than worship music. You know, worship music is, uh, we're going to praise God together, let's praise God together, and that's great. I love I love worship music. But if you're going to tell a story, then you can pass through all these spaces. You know, you could, I can tell, like, on testimony, you know, Jesus doesn't show up till, like, the last 20 minutes of the album, I think, or, or something, you know, because I'm telling my story. You know, on one, it's like the God and man are together, and then man goes off by himself. You know, I'm going to create things myself i can you know i'm going to get the glory for myself and build skyscrapers and and then defines how empty that is and crashes down and the thing that's great about all that and then then of course jesus comes to save him Mm -hmm. um that's kind of the story arc of that album but what's great about that is you can write a lot of stuff that people who aren't christians can relate to right and and that's what i was thinking is the genre itself i think lends itself to that kind of approach and exploration and it also seems to me that there's a mythological penchant in prog music and there's a mythological element to a lot of scriptural stories like lewis just says this is just the myth that happens to be true you know so so lewis and tolkien can tell these stories that in these values and contain these gospel elements and the whole world can enjoy Lord of the Rings or Narnia and my wife and I did quite a few um, 
trips to Central Europe working in uh, places like you know, Czech Republic. And one time we were doing English work and we'd play concerts at night and work with teenagers during the day using lyrics as a way to kind of talk about English, wow, but great. also talk oh, about cool. meaning, you know. Mm -hmm. And we're breaking down a Coldplay lyric or U2 lyric to talk about the difference between literary understanding of English and metaphorical yeah. like meaning. And at one point, you know, we're using some scripture verses that the song lyric was referencing. And I asked the teenagers, I said, does it bother you at all? Like, is it uncomfortable for you for us to refer to our faith or to the to the scriptures in this way? And they said, oh, no, no, no. We find it very interesting. It's no different than if you were talking about Zeus or Jupiter. You know, like, mm. they're not at all threatened by stories about Jesus or the... Uh, and especially because it was all done in a format that made sense. We were looking at text to try to find meaning, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I thought, man, <laughs> I grew up in this, this culture in America where Christians are constantly, in my world, we're trying to kind of shove the gospel in, you know, into so like a trick, like we're going to shove the vitamin into the peanut butter to get it down the dog's throat, you know, kind of <laughs> right. a thing. Yeah, and yeah. I was like, progressive rock always had these kind of weird mystical stories and why wouldn't it make sense for somebody to be exploring um, gospel ideas, spiritual metaphors, even Jesus in that milieu. But then eventually, you're, you've been able to re-engage with some of those things you'd quit. Like you're able to go back and yep. work with some. So, so at what point were you able to decide? Oh, you know, I, I can do all of this stuff. I can I can do my specifically biblically themed records and collaborate with Transatlantic and, and all of this stuff is back on the table. Yeah, well, that was later on. I think it was around 2008, 2009. Uh, you know, interestingly, a lot of these albums and ideas, they came from someone else. Someone else said to me, you ought to make a, you know, you ought to make a concept album about, about Martin Luther and start right in the middle of the battle and all this stuff. It's like, oh, okay. You know, you're nuts. <laughs> I'm never going to do that. <laughs> a couple weeks later, yeah. it's just haunting me yeah. like, that's right. what's next. That's what's next. Wow. But the, the Whirlwind album was actually a friend of mine saying, you know, he was, you know, he's a real Bible guy. And he was thinking about the, the Whirlwind in uh, the book of Ezekiel yeah. and uh, uh, how the world, God speaks to Job out of the Whirlwind and that the four winds, the, all the four guys in Transatlantic could be like the four winds. You should write an album called The Whirlwind and have Transatlantic record it, which was really out there to say in 2008. Mm -hmm. You know, because I hadn't done anything or even talked to them since 2002, I think. Anyway, it was another one of those things, a little worm in my ear, that, and so I 
you know that was that was the beginning it always starts with some kind of piece of music for me it's like well I'm feeling this music and I, I think those guys would be great on this so and conversations that you have you know mm-hmm. I, but I, 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 I did proceed with caution about a lot of that stuff again I don't want to I don't want to go back to who I was I don't want to be even perceived as going back <laughs> so I was very careful about it and I had lunch with Rick Altizer around that time. I was kind of feeling this thing about transatlantic and the whirlwind. He was like, he just put my mind at rest about about it in a really godly way that, you know, that might be hard for some people to understand why that would be a challenge for me. You know, I also didn't want to hurt anybody's feelings. You know, I didn't want to hurt the Spox guy's feelings. I just had all these considerations mm-hmm. about it. But th- that was the beginning of me coming back and working with Transatlantic again. And then uh, we had a, a couple different Spox reunions. And we wound up doing the whole Snow album, which had never right. been performed at Morse Fest in 2017, I think. Something right. like that. So, yeah, I don't know. It, it all, you know, comes back <laughs> around. I... Uh, I'm just really thankful that the Lord's led me into such beautiful places to play music with such great people. Well, and it's just, it seems very consistent with how I, I've experienced things that, that maybe there's a time to come away from things to, to grow and heal and uh, learn. But often, you know, the experiences that we've had equip us to go love a particular group of people and be a part of a community. And so, we're often sent back and you know patrick was <laughs> sent back to ireland to the people that imprisoned him like like there's he had a unique ability to go speak that language and yeah uh, use their metaphors and stuff kind of felt like it was it was like the lord saying no 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 i'm not going to take you out of that i want you to testify to the people in that right and you bring your whole self wherever you go as opposed and to splinter i'm like thank you lord because yeah. <laughs> you know i love this music and I love the people right. and you know it was like he let me have it all this community has coalesced around this music you've got morse fest so people actually physically can come and um, hear all the different expressions of music Um, tell me about your thinking and how that evolved as to how you would curate this community and cultivate it more intentionally um, uh, over the years and and where that where those ideas came from and how that's been manifest well you can probably guess that what i'm going to say God did it. I didn't do it. I didn't do it. God did it. He totally did. Uh, was it that same voice saying, call me God, like booming in your chest? or was No, it, this, you know, it's always different, right? A little bit more you know? subtle, probably. Yeah, the way he works is always different, interesting. What happened for Morse Fest was uh, my pastor over at the church here, uh, this is 2013 or something, he's like, you know, you travel all over the world doing these concerts. Why don't you do one here? And I'm like, huh. I say, I say to my, think to myself, this guy has no idea. What? <laughs> 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 yeah, I love, I love my, uh, 
my friend Steve Farmer, but I did, you know, it's like we don't have a big audience here. We'd have to fly in, you know, we'd have to bring in sound and lights. It's not really possible. So I just kind of blew it off. And my wife and I were going for a walk on the Greenway one day, and I asked her, I just mentioned, like, you know, Brother Steve thinks we should do a, you know, do a Prague concert in the church, you know, because he's a cutting edge kind of guy, wants to reach people. And, uh, and she was like, yeah, yeah, that's, that's not going to work. But if you were going to do it, <laughs> you'd need to make it like a special like weekend because you don't have a lot of fans here, but probably people would come in, you know, if we had like a whole thing. And I start thinking about the Merlion weekends. You know, they do these weekends that are just tremendously successful. And, you know, and then she says, then she says, are there any albums that you haven't performed in their entirety? And I said, well, that's weird. Mike was just saying how he's never played one all the way through. We never, we didn't tour that. And I was, you know, I, that's one of my favorite albums that I've ever made. So it was like, for me, I know that the Lord has to <laughs> dangle music before me. <laughs> it takes a pastor, a wife, a greenway, yeah. and an album you never performed. And all of a sudden, the impossible sudden, starts oh, to seem like And something. she says, and, you know, couldn't you get, like, the string players that played on the record? Because they're all local. Like, you can't right. take all these people on the road. Right. But you could get them to show up in cross planes. I'm like, yeah. So you could probably get a choir. I'm like, <laughs> so that was how it that was yeah. how it started and then but it, as far as what it became because it, it, it's become something way more than right. than that uh, you know part uh, music festival part spiritual retreat part fellow you know homecoming fellowship it's become a community thing that's got its own life right. which is just amazing right. <laughs> I mean, it's like and I'll, you know what I said in the beginning, I said, okay, I'll do it. Because then we started talking about it with other people. And, the, and then my thing was like, I'll do it, but I'll only do the music. <laughs> if somebody else can do all the other stuff, then I'm down. And that's the way it's been. Pretty much I just do the music and other people do all the other stuff. And it's just great. It's like, it's just God, just the orchestration. Of about the app you're able to actually coalesce all this mountain of music i mean i don't even i tried to count it in 40 some albums studio albums 40 some live albums and anyway, i don't know um it's a ridiculous cool. amount of yeah, music it's a lot um, of stuff yeah you've developed your own ecosystem that people can subscribe to tell me about 
the thinking there and how you executed that? It started with me really enjoying streaming myself. You know, not having to get up out of the recliner to, you know, your phone's the remote. Right. You know, somebody wants to talk to you, you just pause it. And then, you know, it's just, it's so great. And the sound is quality seems really good. You know, I A-beat it. With... So I wanted to provide that for my audience uh, and actually, you know, um, you know, make some money from it. And uh, so I started talking about, to people about that, you know, and looking for a team of technicians that would help me with it. And then uh, I threw it out there on the internet. And, and, you know, there were some wonderful people that came in and, and helped me create this app called Waterfall. And it has all my stuff and more, you know, like you can put any demos or piano improvisations or solos on there. And then people have the app on their phone and they can just use it like Spotify. It's great. Is that something that your new projects and uh, everything will kind of come out through that platform? Is yeah. that your exclusive platform or is it just one thing of, among many or how um, does that fit into your Well, the label, I have to say, it's very kind of the labels for the newer things to allow me. They, they allow me to put it on Waterfall. Are you still have relationships with other labels? Yes. In addition to your own label, which you... Yes, yes, I oh, do. Right. Yeah, the, right. a lot of the most recent records I've been putting out have been coming out through Inside Out music, okay. which I kind of parted with in around 2012, I think, and then kind of went back uh, doing things with them in 2018, and it's been really good. But they're very nice to, you know, because when you sign these contracts, it has the digital rights in there. But they right. just they just say, you know, that they don't mind me having it on, on Waterfall. So everything is on there. It's great. Right. Set all your dreams to go Wake up wondering where you are in time I find No better place to go Somewhere wandering there I see the one this level of output i mean you show up every morning here at the studio and you've got something else you're just constantly writing and recording and it's not it's not the kind of music you just phone in this is this is fully produced organic complicated high level high concept kind of stuff where do you draw from to get the resources creatively to keep 
creating at this level? Well, you know, I think every good and perfect gift comes from the Lord, of course. Uh, I, I just, it's my lifeblood, you know. I, I uh, God's very kind, uh, always giving me something that I'm inspired to work on. If I don't have anything I'm inspired to work on, I'll create something. <laughs> Pretty much. Right. <laughs> Even when I'm on vacation. I, I actually sometimes feel like I write more on vacation than I do when I'm home. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I just I I just love being creating things and and uh, it's what it's literally what wakes me up in the morning. I might sleep all day if God didn't wake me up with <laughs> new ideas so i'm really thankful are you a reader is it is it yeah. film is there other things that that spark and, and kind of put gas in the tank uh creatively that you then can draw from for references and wow i don't know all kinds of things you know thought here a word there yeah sure it all shows up that's yeah. what's scary about what you put in it'll come out mm-hmm. right <laughs> so be careful what you put in yeah. um yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm really inspired by uh, biblical things still, you know, and I'm, I'm working on some new pieces that are based on, you know, biblical stories and, and, and things like that. And just, it, it's amazing that there's still more you can dig out of that stuff, no matter how many times you've heard, yeah. you know, yeah. <laughs> this story or that story. It's like, Wow. You know, that's what's so great about preachers sometimes. They'll just bring something out. I never thought about that before. Wow. I've heard that story a million times. So hopefully my music will bring out things that people hadn't thought about too. And spark something in them.
Thanks, Neil. There was so much more we could have talked about. We could have gone down the creative process rabbit trail. I will say that Neil is so generous with that information on his own podcast, on his YouTube channel, and in other ways that I didn't feel like we had to drill down into every little detail. As you become a fan, however, know that there is a lot to discover in Morseland. As I pull out my soapbox to wrap this up, I'm wondering about the critical and even cultural pushback prog rock has experienced for so long. What might be behind that and what it might suggest about how some of us approach music or art in general. I'm also thinking about how Neil had to get to the end of what he thought success looked like before he found his true path. I know that a good bit of the critique progressive rock faced back in the 70s and 80s was that it had become bloated, maybe even indulgent. The punk ethic steamrolled the rock world with the democratizing idea that anyone should be able to do this stuff. Rock and roll shouldn't require extensive expertise, special training, or even much in the way of critical thinking. Just let it fly. Three chords in the truth. It was populist. It was participatory. It was tribal and fun and disruptive and some empowering and beautiful ways. And obviously, the reaction wasn't just about the music. The punk revolution was as much about the repudiation of academia, the political establishment, industry, religious institutions, and all the other complex systems of power that had worked hard to keep order in society without providing real answers or lasting justice. It was as if an entire generation was sick of having the answer to every question they had about why they were locked into cycles of poverty or unfairness with some variation of, it's complicated. No, they said, it's not complicated. Complicated answers were how hucksters tricked us. We'd had it, enough was enough. Time to strip it all down to the studs. There's some truth to all that, and I count myself squarely among those who wanted those simple answers, those brash, basic songs I could scream along to. But I think we may have lost something important as we jettisoned anything complex in favor of the simple. And maybe cultivating a taste for more complex music might help stimulate our tolerance for difficult ideas, our ability to discern, to tolerate paradoxes, or even to enhance our capacity to learn, to remember, to imagine. It is absolutely clear that music has a profoundly positive effect on the learning capacity of the brain. It helps children learn. It helps older people retain brain function longer. The science is clear and well-documented and completely fascinating to me. Music stimulates the brain in powerful ways. Learning to play an instrument will almost certainly improve a student's performance in school, from math and science to language arts. Listening carefully to music can be deeply therapeutic for everyone from toddlers to the seniorest of citizens. Oh, I'm all for big, simple anthems, and I love a good folk song, but might some of the disdain toward progressive rock be based on the fact that more complex ideas take more time to absorb? Complicated songs played by virtuosos might require something of the listener that simple songs do not. But what if there is a reward waiting for us in that complexity? What if there is a treasure waiting for us up on that misty mountain? We might be missing out on something from which we would really benefit if we chose to engage it thoughtfully, to put in the work. Nearly half a century on from the punk revolution, I see some parallels to other cultural reformations. There's some real beauty to be found there. But is it time for the pendulum to swing back a bit? 
It's frustrating to see how fast revolutions turn into new institutions. Did that punk spasm against complexity, as needed as it may have been, like the simplicity of the Jesus movement or any number of populist political revolutions, become so cold, so fast, that they became the new system against which thinkers must now rebel? Today, it seems, we need to be able to think complicated, three-dimensional thoughts. We need to be more self-aware and self-critical than ever before. Maybe carefully crafted, complicated, brilliant art, like Neil's or jazz or classical music, or a brilliant painter, writer, poet, or sculptor, might help stimulate our brains to think more deeply, more compassionately, more critically. Neil didn't find his success until he got to the end of The Simple Answers. I don't know, I guess I'm ready for some more complexity, alongside my folk art and my old punk records. If music can stimulate my brain, spark my imagination, enhance my critical thinking, then bring on the good stuff. Okay, I'm climbing off my soapbox now. going to do it for this episode of the true tunes podcast thanks so much to neil morris for his time and for allowing us to use so much great music and thanks to mark hollingsworth for setting all this up you can learn a lot more about neil's music morse fest radiant records the waterfall app and more at neilmorse.com you'll find links and a list of all the songs used on this episode on the show notes page at truetunes.com slash morse Thanks, as always, to our Patreon backers, especially the newest members of the tribe, Brent, Jim, Peter, and Lori. If you'd like to join the group, head over to patreon.com slash truetunes, or if you'd like to give us a one-time gift, you can find the PayPal link on the show notes page. And thank you for doing all the things, leaving us the ratings and reviews at Apple Podcasts, subscribing to the weekly Spotify Gallery Stage Mixtape, and signing up for the email list. This podcast was written and produced by me, JJT, with co-production, editing, and sound design by Bruce A. Brown for Gyroscope Productions. As always, thanks to Phil Keggy and Rex Paul for our theme song, the special instrumental mix of Full Circle. The contents of the program are protected by U.S. copyright law and are the intellectual property of Gyroscope Productions, with the exception of songs or clips that are from previously copywritten materials. Everything on this episode is used by permission or under fair use provisions. Thoughts and opinions of our guests do not represent the positions of the producers or our sponsors. Discernment is recommended. This program is intended for the private use of our listening audience. Gyroscope Productions can be reached at JJT at TrueTunes.com or P.O. Box 60401, Nashville, Tennessee 37206. Until next time, this is JJT, and yes, you can take a turn with the cape now. Just be careful with it. Rock on. Peace. Peace.